0: Just as the recession in 2009 was really a a CFO's crisis, COVID is really a CHRO's crisis and opportunity to shine because so many of the big problems and challenges that we're all facing together have both their root and their solution in our people.
1: We're obviously living in a time that's full of uncertainty, but what decisions can we make to create more joy, connection, and solidarity, even at work? It's a question we're all facing right now. Welcome back to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, managing partner and chairman at Kearney. Today's guest has spent her career defining the new rules of work. Well before the events of 2020, many people were already interested in the future of work, the definition of job readiness and the changing dynamics of the social contract of work. But what do those new rules of work look like now in this no normal, never normal context? Katherine Minshew is CEO and co-founder of The Muse, a career development platform that helps over 75 million people craft more meaningful careers. She's the co-author of The New Rules of Work and she joins us today to think about joy at work and what that means now. So Catherine, welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Alex. I'm really excited to be here.
1: This is a little bit of deja vu because we had a bit of a podcast earlier in the year and we've had to update it for all the things that have unfolded.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. I think the world has changed in so many interesting ways in the last few months. And I love that uh, you're taking the time to really look forward at, at what's changed and what stayed the same.
1: I want to hear about what's changed as you look at the world, the new ways of working. How has work changed for you in this year?
0: I would say it's been a time of learning of, uh, of trial and error. I think personally, I have changed almost everything about the way that I've worked. I used to be in the office five days a week. I'm now almost entirely remote. I used to be very heavy on FaceTime, on getting on planes, on you know showing up face-to-face in person for as many meetings as possible. And that simply hasn't been something that we can do these days. And yet, I think at the same time, the fact that everything has been turned on its head has allowed people to ask really big, important questions about how we want to be working. And it's really interesting to me. I think it's always exciting when as a society, we allow ourselves to really redefine things. And so there's been an energizing component of the last few months for me really getting to take a step back and say, how do I personally want to work? And how do I think my company should work? And and more broadly, what norms and standards of the way that work gets done in America and in the world should we consider changing?
1: How have you gotten the energy or the resolve to be able to cope with all those challenges?
0: the first thing I've tried to do is really reconnect to why I started the business and why I do what I do every day. Because when you go through times like this, that that frankly really test you. I mean, I I had mornings where all I wanted to do was just be in the fetal position, especially in March and April in the depths of the pandemic. And I think you've got to remind yourself what matters, what is the, the core, the essence of what I do? What am I trying to change or make better in the world. And that big picture has really driven me. So I've spent a lot of time reconnecting with individual job seekers who use the muse to navigate their careers. I've spent a lot of time talking to different employers about how they're navigating the crisis and, and what the challenges and opportunities are. And I just keep trying to ground myself and take you know small measurable steps.
1: Having that regrounding, as you put it, in what matters seems to be very critical. I guess you've created opportunities for you to restate why you care about the muse and your mission. How did you actually communicate that?
0: It's a great question. I've had to push myself out of my comfort zone in that because I realized that what was most important was not how I wanted to communicate, but what my team and my employees needed to hear. We've been doing every two weeks, all hands meetings where we bring the whole company together for about an hour. And that is one way that I've been talking with the company about what is going on more broadly, How does this affect the muse? How is our mission and our goals and objectives changed or unchanged by this? And what are the opportunities and the challenges that I see ahead? People are so hungry for that information. We've also been really making use of breakout groups, whether that's communicating to each of the department leaders and then having them facilitate small groups with their team so that people who are not comfortable speaking up in a big group can ask questions. In some cases, it's been making use of the randomly assorted breakout groups function of Zoom to put people into small conversation groups, to bond with coworkers that they may not have as much of an inner uh, of an opportunity to interact with in their day-to-day.
1: I want to come to your lessons learned from dealing with your partners and the companies that are looking for the talent that's out there. But on your teams and your culture, how are you dealing with burnout?
0: Burnout is a huge issue right now for employees across the board. And I think that it's important for leaders to recognize that you cannot stay in crisis mode forever, right? So when, when COVID first hit, There was a month or two where many businesses across the industry flipped into crisis mode, and that is painful, but there is also a lot that can be accomplished when you have, you know, a a pressing need, urgent deadlines, and you bring everyone together to really focus heads down on an issue, Um, and we saw that at the Muse as well, but I think it's important for leaders to message to their employees that we cannot stay in crisis mode forever, and that now we need to transition into a new normal. And what does that look like? It means clearly uh, communicating to your team that it's okay to take time away. In fact, that you support and recommend that they take time away to refresh. I think it's asking your team what they need, so asking people, how can leadership best support you? How can our organization best support you? And being fairly transparent about what you receive and what you're doing in response. I think it's also very important to allow for flexibility wherever possible. We had employees that needed to work from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. because they were splitting childcare with a working spouse. We had individuals that needed to you know radically shift their availability. And of course, there are certain constraints within any business. You need to make sure that the sort of foundation of work is covered, but wherever you can, I think, this is a time for flexibility. And as we shift into talking a little bit more about the industry, we're seeing employees talking amongst themselves, both within a company and at other companies about who is offering that flexibility, who is not. And I think it's affecting employment decisions in a really interesting way.
1: What are some of the lessons that will, will stay with us, do you think?
0: First of all, I believe that COVID is accelerating a number of really interesting trends that were in play before the pandemic, but that have really come to the forefront. One is this idea of a changing relationship between employees and employers. And a shorthand that we use at the Muse often is relationships over transactions. But more broadly, it means that the old model of labor in exchange for a paycheck, it's no longer serving most people and instead individuals are looking for their employers to provide much more. They're looking for learning and growth, flexibility, a broader sense of meaning, much more human workplaces. There's also this massive trend towards authenticity that I think is so interesting and, you know, a, a perfect example is when everything shifted to not just remote, but really work from home during a global crisis, uh, you know, a global pandemic. It was impossible to separate our personal and professional selves in the way that office workers might have historically, right? You couldn't sit at your dining room table and do a Zoom with your boss without the possibility of a pet, a child, a parent, a roommate coming into the screen or a disruption coming in. And we all just had to learn to live with it. But I think in a way it's made us more human and it's really accelerated this trend towards authenticity in the workplace. And so there's a few interesting implications of that. One is the importance of reputation. We've been talking for many years about how a company's reputation as an employer has been affecting and, and will continue to affect the access to talent they have, both who they can hire and who they can retain. But that trend is massively accelerating. Our data shows that 85 to 90% of job seekers are considering a company's reputation as one of their top factors in deciding where to work. And reputation, by the way, it's not just what a company wants to tell you about itself. It's also made up of the sum total of employee experiences, how those are communicated, what your employees say about you on social to other individuals. And so candidates are really looking to see how organizations are behaving through this crisis. How are they treating their employees? There's a really interesting trend towards candidates and employees looking for organizations that share their values. And I think that's been, again, heightened by COVID because there's a lot more data. How did your company treat its people when the stuff hit the fan? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on this, but what happened when things got tough? If you did layoffs and many, many businesses did, how did you treat the people who left? How did you treat the people who stayed? Employees are building these really interesting whisper networks where they're sharing a lot of this information about how employers are showing up during the hard times.
1: I loved your phrase about the whisper networks. And it seems to me, if you extrapolate that, the talent really now has the power. Do you see that or do you just see the other, which is an oversupply of workers and employers are being more selective? How do you see that supply-demand balance happening with this whisper network phenomenon?
0: Well, look, there is currently, and in the very immediate sense right now, post the unemployment spikes that we saw in March, April, and May, there's certainly a temporary return of the balance of power to employers. They've got a lot of of out-of-work candidates to choose from. And so obviously that's shifted the balance in an immediate or what I would say in a temporary and short-term sense. And the reason I use those words is because I do not believe this is permanent. And I think that employers that think you can put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to candidate power and when it comes to employee whisper networks are fooling themselves. Interestingly, first of all, we actually saw a drop And, and most job search sites saw a drop in people looking for jobs in March, April and May. One of the largest job search sites out there saw its uh, search traffic drop by almost 25%. And I think that was because right in the in the throes of the pandemic, a lot of job searchers who were employed sat back and said, you know what? I'm not gonna leave my company. I'm gonna stay where I am right now. You know, and, and we see this anytime there's a lot of instability or crisis in the broader market. That said, there are many people who are unemployed, they've been starting to look for work again. We saw through the summer a lot of job search volume tick back up. But interestingly, and this happens almost every time there's a recession or some sort of major economic change, people do lower their standards in the short-term because we all need a paycheck, You know, people need to pay the bills, but it doesn't last. And the employers that think about talent as a long-term game are ultimately going to be so much more successful. One of the examples I like to cite is in post the 2001 recession, Monster.com, which was the, you know, the big reigning job search platform of the time, Monster did a big campaign called Never Settle, where they went after all those people who took a job because they needed one or stayed in a job because the broader market seemed uncertain and challenging. And they said, look, as the economy starts to recover, don't settle, go back out there. And the early indications that we get from Muse users and job seekers is that the exact same thing is going to happen when the economy starts to come back online. And so I, I think, again, it's important for employers to recognize yes, there are people right now who are perhaps, you know, I don't necessarily love the word desperate, but people who need work, people who are willing to settle to some extent, but the cycle always goes up just as it comes down. And candidates have been building much more of of a network of a process around researching employers, considering reputation, looking for places that treat their people well. um, And that's not going to change. And actually, after the events of the summer and after the broad national conversation on racial justice in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, a lot of candidates, especially millennial and Gen Z candidates, are also asking how the company is doing on measures of racial justice and diversity and inclusion. And those are tough questions for some employers to answer right now. But again, the, the questions aren't going away. And I think that the trend towards candidates, particularly the best candidates, increasingly asking for is not changing. Younger talent is becoming bolder in asking companies to respond to social issues, asking how companies are doing. And again, there will always be people who are willing to ignore some of these other factors and just take the job. But I think what we're seeing from a lot of employers is that if they want to consistently be able to attract the best people, they have to be thoughtful about what those people want and what sorts of policies behavior, et cetera, is going to, you know, to really attract and retain them.
1: I mean, it seems like it's a perfect time to be bolder and look for breakthroughs on the human capital side. And from the employer side, it seems that what you're saying is that we need as leaders of companies and enterprises and even communities to set a context for coping for everyone to sort of feel safer and seen. But then going forward, it has to be about really breaking through towards caring.
0: I love that framing. I really love it. And I think I do want to be clear that this is not about companies being perfect because I think sometimes right now for leaders, particularly in talent and HR, but frankly, you know, all of us as, as executives and leaders of businesses, sometimes it can feel like, you know, do I, do I have to be perfect? You know, how do I become everything to everyone that employees are asking for And I just want to be really clear. It's not necessarily about being a 10 out of 10 on every dimension tomorrow, but it is about organizations that have a clear sense of what they want to become, how they want to be as employers and as orgs, and that they're communicating that to their team. And again, and being transparent and being honest. On the Muse, many of our, our customers have these profiles where they upload photos, videos, all sorts of information about their company, their culture, their different departments and subgroups. Let's say that they're in an industry that historically has not been very diverse, and they'd like to be more diverse. They often are more successful if they say, look, we are working on being more diverse. We're not where we want to be, but we have targets, we have goals, we want you to join and help us get there. Then if they pretend that they're all perfect, that they've done all the work and then candidates interview or join and recognize that that's not actually the truth. Because again, we have conditioned consumers in their purchases, in a lot of online behavior that once you consume a product, you buy something, you get to rate it afterwards, right? We have an entire culture that is built on what you think you're going to get should match what you receive. And people are rewarding companies that are willing to be a little bit more upfront, out of the gate ahead of time about where they're still on the journey, where they're not perfect. And as long as that matches what you get on the inside. And and I think it's really interesting, just as the recession in 2009 was really a, a CFO's crisis, COVID is really a CHRO's crisis and opportunity to shine because so many of the big problems and challenges that we're all facing together have both their root and their solution in our people and in our talent. I've been waving the flag for a long time that talent needs to be a strategic player at the highest levels of the organization. And I think we're really seeing an opportunity for that to happen with everything that's changing because of the last few months.
1: You mentioned something about authenticity and this reinforces that too. The authenticity of what you say you are doing on whatever you pick, you pick the topic, racial justice, diversity, inclusion, social impact concerns, you know, an employee is gonna know the, the real truth. So if you're an employer just saying quite honestly, listen, We're not perfect and we're working on it is probably going to do you better in this game of whispering than touting every award you won and look at this person and look at that role model.
0: It can also be as simple as the language that you use in job descriptions or on your company career site. I think if you go back 10 to 15 years ago, it was very common for businesses to speak in this sort of highly professional, almost stylized language. I cannot tell you how many careers pages I've seen that say like, we are a team of innovators committed to excellence. Like what does that even mean? Oh, sorry. I was looking for an uninnovative company that doesn't want to be great. No, nobody wants that. It's been so interesting to me seeing this push for authenticity. It's it's about being true, but it's also just about speaking to people in a language that is more akin to, to how humans talk to each other. The best job descriptions we see are a like little bit more down to earth and relatable. The best career pages we see really focus on quotes from employees and employee generated content, not just these big, broad pie in the sky proclamations. One test I often say is you could pull something off your careers page or out of some of your company materials and apply it to five other companies in your industry probably not telling somebody anything unique or interesting about you. So what could you say that really gets a little bit closer to the core of why you're different, why someone should choose you as a place to work?
1: That was critical to our own rebranding just in the last year. We aligned around the message of being who we are, being original. Question for you, though, Catherine, you know, you're a, a very interesting perch. You see sectors going up and down, companies getting in and out, employees looking at this and that. What sectors are going to be really, really hot from what you've seen?
0: Well, right now is... In some ways, it's a it's a dangerous time for many employers because we do have a few segments of the economy that have actually benefited from this shift to remote and from some of the changes in consumer and business behavior driven by the pandemic. And those sectors are hiring in full force, and many of them are trying to capitalize on this time to recruit the best talent away from sectors, industries, and companies that are struggling. But for existing businesses, it can be a trap to fall into thinking that because the the economy overall is suffering, that nobody's coming after your people believe me, someone is still coming after your people. Someone is always coming after your best people. But I also think that the smart businesses are thinking now about who they want to be after this is all over, because everything ends, right? And so even though we won't go back to the way things were before, we're going to go back to a new normal. There will be boom times again. There will be lots of competition for talent again. And I think that the most strategic leaders are taking the time now to think, are there moves I want to make while everybody else is in a defensive position? that help set me up for success? Are there things I need to change about my business, my team, my product now? So again, I think it's a really interesting time. One other trend I'll just call out, and it's related to what you're asking, but I'm a big believer that as leaders, we need to shift the way we think about recruitment to being tied to the long-term outcomes. And what I mean by that is many companies still look at their recruiting function and they measure it as how many applicants did I get How fast and how cheap did I make a hire? But Alex, you you probably think about this too. Like, what do you think about when you're hiring? It's not, did I make it as cheaply as humanly possible? It's, did I get a great person who's going to move my company forward? Did I get someone who's going to stay, you know, who's going to be retained, who's going to be promoted, who's going to be effective? And I think that we have a huge opportunity while all of this focus is really coming onto the talent and the people part of our orgs to really up-level how we recruit. Of course, keeping costs down is important. But I think if you asked most leaders, would you pay an extra $100 per hire, but be able to keep people for six to 12 months longer? Generally, they would say yes. And it's so interesting because we've seen a lot of data that indicates that some methods of recruiting, some job search platforms, like frankly, I'm biased because the muse is great at quality and great at retention, but that there are certain things companies can do that help create better long-term outcomes for their employees. And that's not always the absolute cheapest or fastest in the moment. I just think when we look ahead, one of the things I'm really a believer in and that I really hope that we change collectively, we trade out this short-term focus on just thinking of people as commodities, just getting them in the door, you know, how fast can we kind of get a butt in the seat? And we start to really build strategic talent functions that are recruiting and retaining for the long term.
1: Fully agree with that. I mean, human capital has two words and you need to attract retain and inspire for the long term. It's a capital asset. These days, the mind space also drifts very importantly to community and politics, racial and social injustice. How has the racial and social justice piece figured into your leading your company and how you see the next generation of workers and employees and leaders?
0: It's such a powerful and important topic right now. And, you know, when I started The Muse nine years ago, part of what I wanted to achieve was to build a more inclusive, responsive, diverse workplace. I've seen firsthand how challenging it can be. When I started The Muse, I was often the only woman in the room and I was in my mid-20s then. So I was often, you know, very young. I I can't tell you how many times I just got sort of patronized and and pat on the head. So I personally have a really strong passion for building spaces, industries, workplaces, where all people can do their best work, regardless of gender, race, socioeconomic background, sexual orientation, etc. And I think that, you know, this is an area where a lot of people have been talking the talk for the last several years. But this summer, the broader racial justice conversation that opened up, it really shone a light on where many of us are not doing enough, and how as leaders, we can't just say that we care, we need to put real money, time, attention on these issues of injustice, or they're never going to go away. One of the things that's given me a lot of hope and optimism is how many job seekers of all backgrounds, all races, all genders are saying that working for a diverse and inclusive employer is a priority. This is important because if only women are asking for more gender diverse workplaces, or only people of a certain race are asking about the you know racial and ethnic makeup of a workplace, it is much harder to make progress than if every single white guy is like, well, hey, I- I'd like to work at an employer that's very diverse as well. You know, Can you tell me how your business encourages and supports inclusion and diversity and belonging? And we're starting to see that happen across a lot of different parts of our job seeker base. Again, I think it became very clear this summer how far we have to go, how homogeneous leadership still is at a lot of companies. And I think that it has forced a reckoning that is very painful, but very necessary because you cannot fix a problem that you don't deeply understand and recognize and admit. The proof is really going to be whether employers and leaders can continue the focus can continue to make those hard choices, because obviously, it's it's easier to say, oh, yes, we care about this, but to just, you know, sort of speed towards the, the easiest, fastest solution, which often just given the way that hiring works, in many cases, it often ends up being someone who's from the exact same group as the majority of your employees, even if that person is actually not the most qualified, because obviously, there's a lot of research showing that very, very qualified applicants from various minority groups are often overlooked, or don't receive the job description. So I think that there is a, a lot of work to be done. And we're working on being responsive to the fact that a lot of job seekers want to know that information about a company before they apply or before they take a job. And so I think you're going to see a lot of really interesting solutions on a you know sort of product and technology basis come out in the next few months. And then obviously, I think that businesses are going to have to decide really, truly how much of a priority is it.
1: I'm glad to hear you say that, but also that you've seen that in the broader populations that you touch let's look forward to the 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 end of the tunnel here A, a year from now what would you like to have learned or how do you see 2020 shaping us into the future
0: well i think that many of the most successful people look back at a really hard painful time in their lives and point to the seeds of their growth the seeds of their success during those challenging times and i hope that collectively 2020 becomes that year for many of us because it has not been fun or easy or pretty for most people and most businesses, but that's okay because life is very complicated. And I think that the best thing that many of us can do is try and both personally grow and grow our teams, our businesses through this time. And so when I look ahead again, I hope that we really continue to recognize the humanity of our employees, to build businesses and organizational structures and uh, teams that encourage and, and sort of celebrate our people as whole humans and that encourage their flourishing, not just as professionals and leaders, but also as individuals. I think that businesses that continue to invest in communication, in transparency, in authenticity are key. Obviously, we've just talked about diversity and inclusion, but we cannot build companies that best represent and serve the diversity of the world in 2020, 2021, if we don't turn that same focus towards building the diversity of our teams and the diversity of backgrounds and ideas and, and races and genders and orientations and all of these different layers, I think are going to continue to be very important. So I think that in closing, I think that this is a precious and painfully, painfully won opportunity for us all to be better. And I really hope that we take it.
1: Catherine, thanks so much. I love your passion, love your principles and look forward to seeing you on the other side.
0: Thank you so much. It was wonderful chatting and I appreciate you having me on.
1: If you're looking for ways to build more connection and solidarity at work, subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding hope and joy through your work. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have questions you'd like us to answer this season, please email us at joyatcarney.com. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward even during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joyatwork.